My deep appreciation of theater history was instilled in me by Tom Empey, a college mentor to me and hundreds of others. While teaching Greek theater terms, he would grab the fabric of his slacks and say, You see these pants? Euripides, Eumenides making light of content that could be considered rather dry and stuffy while still maintaining respect for the art, which is what I want to do with this podcast. For each episode, I invite a guest from the many paths my theater career has taken me down. I give my guests no idea what we'll be talking about, but they know we're going to find an outrageous story about theater history and perhaps get a better understanding about why we're still doing it after all these years. So welcome to Euripides Humanities, and I am your host, Aaron Odom. Friends and listeners, this is Aaron Odom from Trident Theater in Sheridan, Wyoming, coming to you for another episode of Euripides, Eumenides, a theater history podcast. Man, we're getting close to 50. That's a lot. That seems like a big deal for me. I see a lot of other podcasters go out there and, you know, I, I'm like, I discover them on like episode 247. I'm like, you've been doing this since when? And they're like, oh, last August. And they're like, my God. But hey, you know what? I'm going at the pace I'm going at. I'm having a ball doing it. And I am thrilled to have uh, the opportunity to reconnect with a lot of my old friends that I have uh, worked with in the theater world for a while. And today I have a friend of mine who I worked with when I was a a starving actor up in Seattle. And uh, I got the opportunity to work with this guy in uh, some improv circuits. And we did a lot of shows together up in Seattle. But this is my friend, actor and improviser, Robert Bogue. Hello, Robert. Hello, Aaron. It is so good to be on your show and to connect with you again um yeah it's been it's been obviously you know with with everything that's been going on in the world uh it's the one really good thing social media does have is that it can uh, keep people connected over a long uh long distance and that's oh my uh, gosh it's been the best mm-hmm. so and yeah. it, you know when i created this show that was one of the binding factors to it was that it, I, I popped this thing open in January of 2021 when we're mm. like eight months into this thing and no end in sight. And, mm-hmm. and you know, those of us who are, uh, you know, live performing artists are like, uh, <laughs> so when do we get to play again? Exactly. And, but so here we have this format where it's like we can connect through this uh, video and audio connection technology anywhere in the world. I mean, I've had guests on here from London. I've had guests on here who've been in Atlanta and Savannah in LA in New York, all over the place. And now you're coming to me from Seattle and that's pretty Oh, awesome. come on. Tell them, tell them I'm somewhere else. Tell them I'm somewhere else. Okay. More okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, if I'm in well, Seattle, I'm like at the top of the needle or like I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm like in a you're, boat, like in the in the bay or something like that. You're I mean, hunting not... Sasquatch. Okay, so oh, yes, uh, yes. Coming to me off of his tour through uh, Dubai and Tel Aviv is uh-huh. uh, uh, Robert Bogue, uh, <laughs> uh, worldwide improvisational uh, actor extraordinaire. Um, wow. That's <laughs> that is completely and totally believable. I'm. I'm gonna stick with that. 
Hey, I'm testing off my improv his, his <laughs> skills here too. Um, so speaking of improv, Robert, you have been uh, involved with being the director of several troops in Seattle. I've led, uh, I founded an improv troupe back in 2005 called uh, Split Second Improv. And I was the artistic director of that. And we performed all over the play. I mean, we had we had so many great, uh, great team members. And that was, that was when you and I were yep, yep. performing back, uh, back in the very early days of split second. And that's one of those things that I absolutely love about, about networking and, and good friendship in theater. Like I heard that from a friend I had done a couple shows with and she mm-hmm. goes, Hey, there's this improv thing starting up. I know you do improv. Are you interested? I'm like, uh, sure. And we did several shows together. Up oh there. yeah. So that, that, I, I just love that, 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 you know, it's not always like finding an, a message on a call board or, you know, answering an ad in a paper. It's just maybe some guy is backstage with you and you're getting your makeup on and go, hey, I heard about this thing. You you in? Exactly. Exactly. It's the that. best. Yeah. So so I, I, I was doing that and I've done that for I've done that for so long. I needed to just take a take a little bit of a change, a little bit of a break mm-hmm. and, and stop uh, stop being in charge of something for a while and just uh, just really explore my art and go back to being an actor and a performer. And I was very, very lucky to, uh, to become involved with this, uh, with this troupe, uh, UP North, which performs out of uh, Edmonds, Washington. And yeah. uh, they do, you know, uh, for, they do long, long form, short form. They do, they do a lot of themed, themed performances. So I'm very excited. They've got shows coming up here uh, in the fall and in the winter. So, uh, so check them out. UP, UP North. Yeah. UP North. Nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, as we were talking before the show, just kind of getting reacquainted and everything uh, you and I have a similar project coming up uh, <laughs> as my listeners have noted. Uh, if any of my listeners have gone back, um, we have some really cool episodes on our production of rocky horror picture show 2021 in which um i don't know uh, how how much of it is entering into your world robert but we we talked a ton in those rehearsal processes and in the kind of you know i guess we can call it a post-mortem uh when we talked about that show in those two episodes but stage intimacy training was mm-hmm. a huge deal for us, especially yes. in this show when it's so camp, it's so burlesque, it's so sexual in nature, but those are things that can have incredibly traumatic impacts on people when you're like, okay, you have to be the subject of a, uh, basically a sexual pursuit right now. Go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, yeah, we did. We had, and we've, uh, when we were, when we were first uh, even talking about doing the show, um, there was some discussion as to, you know, uh, with the uh, with the way things have changed, the way sensitivities have changed, the way the way a lot of attitudes have have changed, is Rocky something that still um, can really be done in the oh, way yeah. it was originally done? And 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 it's definitely there are some definite, I'd say problematic problematic points. Yep, I but I totally we, agree. Yeah, as we talked about it though. As we talked uh, talked to uh, the the LGBTQT plus community, um, we really realized that um, the impact and the importance of Rocky being one uh, for for many many people uh, for so many years not just not just when it first came out but since Rocky has been a place for for people to 
to be themselves and possibly yes. for, for so many people, the only place that they can be themselves, they can, yep. they, they don't, they don't feel judged. They can be, they can be any, any, any body, any body size, any, um, uh, any orientation, any, they can be anything they want. And that's the one place they feel completely safe and supported. And they're okay. And, they're okay. And, and they're there. okay. Yes. And it's totally fine. Yeah. It's completely accepted. And yeah. so we realize that even with uh, even with some of the the problematic uh, ideas, there are things that we can do within the show that we can that we can uh, kind of change and we can adapt and we can bring those up to maybe a little bit more. Um, acceptable uh acceptable <laughs> motivations i guess so and the fortunate thing is is this is a this is the uh, this is the stage uh stage production of the oh of okay the, you're the, doing the, that okay it's not the shadow casts so yeah. we have a lot more freedom that we're not we are purposely not trying to to emulate you know tim curry and susan sarandon and barry boswick and stuff like that we are we are taking the iconic moments and the ideas of uh, the main idea of really just don't dream it and be it yes, um, and yes, really yes, focusing yes, yes, yes. on that and letting, and, and letting that guide us rather than trying to say, okay, this is exactly how Tim Curry said it. We've got to do it this way. This is exactly how they dress. We've got to do it this way. So um, <laughs> but yeah, so it's uh, so it's really exciting. This is the third time, the first time I've ever directed at this, at this theater, it's the the Red Curtain Foundation up in Marysville, Washington. Oh, nice! And um, I've I've actually directed it a couple a couple of times before at at, uh, at other theaters, but um, uh, every single time I've done it, it's still it's always a different experience. The yeah, but it's always an exciting experience, an exhilarating experience, and the audience has always come away with some sort of some sort of just just smiles. You know, it doesn't it's um. It's just, it's an iconic show. It's an iconic yeah. show. And I'm really excited yeah. to be doing it again. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and that's interesting because I was going to ask that. I, I, I couldn't remember if yours was the stage adaptation or the film, uh, you know, the film adaptation of mm -hmm. the Shadowcast. The yeah. version I do every year is the Shadowcast version. And so mm -hmm. for me, it becomes uh, something of a selection process like we don't have a shadow cast running the entire show yeah like, you know we go okay so there's times when let's just let the movie sail here and you know people are shouting things and they're throwing stuff and you know they're doing the dances and the callbacks and everything um i mean there are scenes that i have to remind myself that frankenfurter is the villain of the story <laughs> you know yeah. uh, and so you know we loved Tim Curry in the movie and he's such a fun character and so great and everything. You have to remember by the end of it, he does meet a tragic end because he has let this pleasure go too far and, yeah. and, and has allowed himself to become a sexual assaulter in a way yeah. and, and not in a way, yeah. frankly, that's just what happens. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I have my cast, like I go, you're not doing that. Mm -hmm. I don't want to see you, any of you be labeled as sexual assaulters, even though you're on stage and playing a role and we've already done the work to make sure that everybody is safe. But I also don't want anybody to associate anybody with being a sexual victim. Frankenfurter and Riff and Magenta, they started out on this, you know, on this mission to yeah. really explore this human condition as they started to, especially Frank, started to let himself, uh, was actually to let themselves uh, be involved involved in the um, 
in the the passions and uh, all of the motivations of of these of these humans, uh, they be, they became became too involved. And like like you say, it's it's almost like this really kind of weird tragic. It leads to their own downfall. Yeah, it's their yeah. pat their old their passion. Their passion, their the depth of their passion lead, does lead to their own yep. their own downfall. So it's um, I, I I love explaining it to uh, my cast members. Like if you don't know tragedy, this is a mm-hmm. tragedy. This is mm-hmm. legitimately a tragedy, even it though it's crazy fun and campy, and we all go, oh yeah, okay. If I had a Rocky Horror in front of me, I'd probably be reacting the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and but it is, got- it is a sensitive bit, but it is a very, it is mm-hmm. a very sensitive, uh, sensitive. It's surpri- how it's surprising how how much depth there is in it and how much sensitivity there needs to be taken with it, now, yeah. especially nowadays. Yeah, um, which is which makes it even more of a challenge. So I, I really love doing that. So yeah, well, and and I love that you just brought up the idea of Frank having alternative pronouns, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's something like <laughs> that just became a light bulb for me. Like, oh, okay, yeah, we got to bring that up because uh, we all know Doctor Frank Inferter, and Frank is generally more of a masculine name. But you know, I've I know women named Frankie and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So uh, that that that's right. okay. Well. Now, now well, and that's the thing direction. too is, is I do. I think that I think that um, I think there are a lot of elements about about Frank that they love. They love the masculine part, yes. but they also they also really really embrace the feminine. Well, I mean, come on, pearls. I mean, just. You got to have the pearls, man. Okay. Well, <laughs> that's awesome. So, so yours is coming up uh, when, and people can see it where? Well, we, opt, uh, we open on October uh, 21st. Mm-hmm. Um, and that runs for, I think it's three weekends. So I think we close the weekend, six, seven, eight, I guess that it's November, that, that first mm-hmm. weekend in November. Yeah. Um, it's a great, uh, Red Curtain is a great, uh, a great little theater. Um, we're gonna have a lot of fun. We're gonna have uh, uh, we're gonna have uh, goodie bags basically uh, available Ooh! for purchase in the lobby. Yes, so that so that people can, you know, we're even though it's a even though it's a live stage, people are still gonna be able to to use their squirt guns and dress up in yep. party hats. And we're definitely yes! encouraging everybody uh. to come out in in whatever form of clothing you <laughs> do or do not want to wear. Um, <laughs> There you go. I'm not going to say anything. I'm nope, not going to say anything. You, that's good. You do. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, there is no judgment here. So there you End go. of the day. Did you buy a ticket? Then you're welcome in the house. Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> Everybody so, welcome. So um, very interesting that you talked a little bit about uh, the idea of, well, we're not going to do what Tim Curry did. We're not going to do what Barry Bostwick did. We're not going to do what Susan Sarandon did. We're, we're, we're launching our own thing. Cause that kind of gets us into what we're talking about today. <laughs> okay. So uh, Robert, I think I put this to you uh, in, in, in a way that I think is going to be able to launch us, but this is still going to be kind of fun. <laughs> so I, I sent you a question just to kind of mm-hmm. ruminate over and, and mm-hmm. I don't, I don't tell my, my guess what we're going to be talking about. Sometimes I give them a little hint and just something to think about so we can talk about it. But the way I brought it to you was this. When you think of iconic Broadway roles and performers, which is your favorite and why? That was, you know, that is a really, 
That is a really great question. That's a broad um, one. <laughs> it is a really, it is a really broad one. Um, but I'm going to expand it. Okay, I'm going to expand. Okay, okay, go for it. I'm going to expand it a little bit, and I'm just, I'm going to just like totally like in your face, and I'm going to do what I want because I'm your guest, and <laughs> and I'm, I'm not, I'm not sitting next to you, so you can't hit me. Um, I'm going to say there's there's two men that I think mm. have have really inspired, and then one woman. And I'm going to start with a woman, Gwen Verdon. Oh, Gwen yes. Verdon was an am- amazing, amazing talent, an amazingly powerful talent. Mm-hmm. Uh, fant- I mean, as far as not not just not just an iconic, uh, an iconic, talented dancer, she was a strong woman character in a way that in a way that uh, it was still it was still feminine. It may, it may, she mixed this feminine uh, idea with still this entertainment. It wasn't. It wasn't like they like like she was was trying to put out some sort of message or trying to put out some sort of direct ideology or anything like that. Yeah. She just she just was herself. You know. Yeah. So I'm thinking of that right now, and I'm thinking you know most uh, most theater enthusiasts would probably associate her more directly with her role as Lola in Damn Yankees. In Damn Yankees, uh huh. And when, in which I, I see where you're going here because yeah, mm-hmm. she was in great shape. She's a great dancer, very mm-hmm. conventionally attractive person. Um, but look, I'm just going to say it. She was a succubus in that play. She was mm-hmm. meant to be a temptress to a guy who is trying to, you know, see if he can beat the will of Satan. And, mm-hmm. and so not only is she like supposed to be sexy and sexual, she is confident in the fact yeah. that she can do that. Absolutely. And, and so, so I see where you're coming there. It's, it's yeah. not like she had some sort of an ideology, but it's just, look, I own this sexy and I can do with it what I want. And it does not belong to anyone else. Mm-hmm. Is that kind of yeah. where you're going? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and seeing that also ties, ties completely into the other, uh, one of the other, the male, uh, okay. uh men that I was going to is, is actually Fosse is, oh, uh, is okay. Bob Fosse. Yeah. Yes. And, and their connection of their connection together you know, damn, uh, damn Yankees. Um, but then also okay. with um, like, like the pajama game. And I think that, that they represented, they represented a, a time on um, uh, with Broadway that really not just explored this, this sexuality, this, um, this, this kind of a, 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 this idea of, you know, this isn't, this isn't uh, Oklahoma, you know. This isn't uh, yes, okay. Uh, all these shows, uh, yeah. show, shows like that. This is a new type of show, yeah. And this is the show going. You know what? We're not gonna we're not gonna pull our punches. We're gonna we're gonna say some shit and and honestly, we're gonna sing some shit and we're gonna dance some shit that you yes. have never seen before. And we're going to change that idea. And mm-hmm. I think that that was at the time that was kind of where there was a huge, you know, there was a huge change in, in musical theater. The same, I think, I think it's the same kind of change that, um, that Hamilton was really going for. Yeah. Um, okay. Something like completely a drastic, new. Yeah. Yeah. Something completely new. You hadn't seen it before. Mm-hmm. And then it became, then it became a standard. And you, you know, you've got, you've got shows like, uh, like uh, cabaret and everything. 
Yeah. But I think that yep. I think that the pairing, the duo, all the work that uh, that uh, Gwen Verdon and uh, Fosse did, um, I think that was such an amazing contribution. Yeah, and 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 as you're talking about that and comparing it to something like Oklahoma, which did have you know elements of like lyrical ballet in it, but yeah, there was still this very dualistic like this is masculine dancing, this is feminine dancing, and then here comes Fosse, and he's like. No, 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 no. We're just going to do dancing. It, yeah. it doesn't have to have a label. And it was very, you know, it, it mingled the waters is androgynous in a way. And, yeah. and just fantastic. Cause all it did was just entice people more. Well, and it too, is it, is it, it made the dancing, not just something pretty to look at the dancing mm-hmm. itself had character, just yeah. the movements themselves the movements themselves were like a, were like a, were like verse. I mean, it's yeah. Uh, for so many uh, American uh, musicals, you know, the idea, you know, unlike an opera that that continues the story along. You know, American musicals where you know we do a story, we do a story, we stop, we sing a song that reinforces that same that same one idea, and we yeah. sing that a little bit, and then we continue on. So the songs and the dancing didn't really. They they didn't really uh, continue anything, but through through Fosse's Fosse's style and through uh, through uh, Gwen Verdon's uh, ability and talent, those those numbers became their own their own continuation of yeah. these storylines, which right. which is which doesn't happen very often, and which is no. I think is just an amazing amazing element something amazing right and then and then with that i you know the other the other uh the other person i was thinking of because you know i'm as an actor i'm overdoing it for you know you ask me one question <laughs> for one person and then i come up with, with three let um, me give you three because i still love and i still and i'll always love it's so much so much more of the classic Hollywood style is, is Bring it um, Gene Kelly is Gene. Oh Kelly. yeah, I will, I okay. will, Because in Gene Kelly, you you do have that classic golden age idea, but you have athleticism. Yes, and you have you you have amazing commitment, amazing commitment to the art, the epic, uh, the epic performances, and everything like that. So, oh my God, he's, he's very confident. He's very different than 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 Fosse and Burden, mm-hmm. but um, but um, again, at the time, this this athletic idea, you know, that that's, that that in and of itself was was contrary to like uh, a stare. So that's wow. That's, okay, that's where I was thinking. That's I love I'm that. Going, you know? I love that. I love that because um, actually, what we're going to be talking about today is somebody who is more or less exclusively famous for their work on Broadway and somebody who has kind of kept that going. But and I mentioned it uh, somewhere in here is one of the last of possibly a dying generation of people who are exclusively famous for being on Broadway. Mm-hmm. So those, uh, those are great because all three of those people, I would argue are exactly that, you know, Gene Kelly, yeah, did get into film and stuff. And so did Gwen mm-hmm. Burden, but no, their work is on the stage. So, okay, here we go. Okay. On Tuesday, May 10th, 2022, at a filmed Q&A session held at the American Theater Wing, 
Patty Lupone. <laughs> Lead actor in the innovative Broadway revival of the Sondheim Musical Company noticed a patron in the second row not following the rules. At that time, the Broadway League had a mask mandate in effect for any event taking place in a Broadway theater or venue. Miss Lupone, who has become somewhat infamous for air quotes, breaking the fourth wall to take audience members to task for poor behavior, had this to say to the patron in the second row. Put your mask over your nose. That's why you're in the theater. In the videos seen online, the patron is unfortunately inaudible, but obviously and briefly pushes back to Patty Lupone. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, I'm going to go ahead and try to hold this tidal wave in my arms. Oh, my God. (laughs) Uh huh. So Patty responds, that is the rule. If you don't want to follow the rule, then get the fuck out. The crowd applauds. The patron stays seated, makes some gestures to Miss Lapone, and still resists. Patty responds, I'm serious. Who do you think you are if you don't respect the people sitting around you? Then, for the first time, the patron can be heard as she shouts back, I pay your salary. What the? Yeah, uh-huh. Miss Lapone smirked and responded, you pay my salary? Bullshit. Chris Harper pays my salary. <laughs> Chris Harper was the producer for company. For company and after yeah. that, yeah. And after that, the night continued as normal, but headlines were already made. The following day, the social media pages and website for the production of company had a short PSA with Miss Lapone stating simply, in words, wear a mask, while Miss Lapone mimed putting a mask over her face. I love that. <laughs> uh-huh. I love that. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. (laughs) Look, the rules aren't here to prevent you from enacting your freedoms. It's basically they're here to help us kind of stem the tide and and move into uh, a new normal, as it were. I hate that. I hate that term. I just this is this is uh, this is a, a, a tool to prevent to to help prevent the spread of a disease that took everybody by surprise and was so unnecessarily made into a political political farce and a political oh, circus yeah. yep. that had that not been done. For the love of God, people around the world wear masks constantly. Doctors and nurses wear masks constantly. Mm-hmm. Firefighters wear masks constantly. Um, prefer, I, 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 actually even now prefer to wear a mask in the supermarket and even even mm-hmm. though I don't have to in a lot of these places because let's face it if some of these folks that are in the supermarket uh were were so upset about um some of the rules about hygiene and wearing masks um, <laughs> I don't know where the I don't know where the fuck they've been right now anyway <laughs> On a on a on a normal day with no diseases, I'm like I I I don't know where the hell you've been. So I'm I'm wearing a mask no matter what. So I, I've I've had a recurring guest on the show, Brand Burtwistle, who is a producer from L.A. and he spent some time uh, in his youth uh, in Japan. And mm-hmm. he told me a story when he when uh, one of the times he was on about um, feeling somewhat offended when he would like get on a subway and there'd be a man across from him wearing a mask and he'd be like, what you think I'm going to get you sick. Is that what you're thinking? And it took just one little explanation. I mean, this was, you know, uh, 
35 years ago uh, and to one little explanation like no that man's probably sick but has to go out into the world and is probably not sick enough to stay at home but he doesn't want to get you sick it's a respect thing okay yeah. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's not when you finally can wrap your tiny brain around the fact that it's not all about you. Not everything is about you. Not every mm -hmm. societal societal norm and societal rule is about you and about attacking you. Then you realize, you know what? We all live that we all live in a group together. You know, we're not yep. we're not isolated. You nope. know, you depend on me, I depend on you. And we need to start work, you know, work as a social group, not as a not as a bunch of individuals locked in their in their in their little uh, in their little cubes. So correct. But I'm I'm all I'm all eleven I'm all eleven uh, Patty Laponi even yeah. more. So I mean, check this out. In response to this uh, incident at the American Theater Wing, the Broadway League extended its mask mandate through the <laughs> end of May from the end of May through the mm -hmm. end of June. Today, wearing a mask to a Broadway event is optional but strongly encouraged. Miss Lapone went to win her third Tony for her performance in company. In her acceptance speech, she thanked many of the people out there who have maintained COVID-19 protocols for productions as, as it is now a full-time position on many productions and all of the respectful audience members who followed the protocols. That's cool. When she made that acceptance speech, it made me think of the second time she won a Tony for playing Gypsy Rose Lee in Gypsy for legendary director Harold Prince, Hal Prince. Mm -hmm. In her acceptance speech, she said, quote, it's such a wonderful gift to be an actor who makes her living on Broadway stage. And then every 30 years or so, pick up one of these. <laughs> <laughs> my damn chair is oh, trying to kill me. I love it. I fell out of my chair. Okay. I fell out of your chair. I saw I it. I saw chair. it. You Shit. That was amazing. Yeah, you couldn't, you know, it's an, it's, this is an all audio format. You could have just not even said that. I <laughs> I was looking away for a second. I didn't even see it for a second. So hey, the go. bones are out, man. The bones are out. So, <laughs> so yeah. Anyway, like we we're saying, it's true. Miss Lapone is one of the last surviving actors who has reached worldwide fame for playing primarily on Broadway. I mean, mm -hmm. you just don't have too many Ethel Mermans or John Rates anymore. No. But with the fame that Miss Lapone has earned, there has been something of a reputation that has followed her. In 2018. Miss Lapone appeared in company in the West End in the same production that won her a Tony four years later. But while on the West End, Miss Lapone had this to say about her reputation in an interview with The Guardian. Quote, Hal Prince is the cruelest director I've ever worked for. He's a great stager, but a terrible director. I am exacting, and I push. If someone has the talent, they have the right to be temperamental. They complained about Bette Midler when she was doing Dolly, but she wouldn't be exciting if she wasn't temperamental. I am fearless on stage, not just to grab people's phones, but I will do anything on stage because anything can happen and the audience wants it to, end quote. Wow. I wish, uh, I wish someone would say that about me. I wish, I wish someone would say I'm... <laughs> I'm hard to work with and fearful. Well, maybe they, maybe they will. Maybe after this next show that I'm directing, maybe they they're will. fearful. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, I do think it's a. <laughs> I mean, I do think that there are some. You know, I I think there are some actors that definitely take themselves themselves too seriously. Oh man! I, but I think that shows in performances. I think there's a big difference between actors who are 
who are very into their character, but they're st- they still want to work with other actors. Yes, it's still a collaborative experience, mm-hmm. you know. And they mm-hmm. have direct and they have directors, you know. They're they're directors that I've worked with that are very much you just do it my way, word for word, and that's that's the way it is. You're only there yeah. as like a as like a tool to show off my work, you know. I've worked with, um, <laughs> yep, you know, and they don't want it to be collaborative at all. I've worked with other directors that have that that have it completely organic and have no idea where they're going and then they just do the whole the whole well i didn't like that do it different but then they can't expand <laughs> on that. You know, i'm right. a friggin idea so mm-hmm. i think there's there's a you know there's a big difference between being um an actor or director who who is talented and wants to focus on their on their their role and how they interact with other actors Right. And, and even while they're and even while they may be you know difficult to work with sometimes, mm-hmm. um I think there are there there there's a there's a line where if you are still trying to get the best not out of just your performance, but out of everybody else's show. Yes. And when you are when you when you're using your character and your uh, abilities and your talents to pull the best out of everyone and let that motivate mm-hmm. other y'all. It's a, it, the big give and take. That's one thing. And, and to Patty's point, like she doesn't just do that with her cast and everybody around her. Uh, I mean, she does it definitely with herself as we're going to go into here in a little bit, but she wants to hold that audience accountable there too, for being, yeah. you know, I mean, there are people who will be like, that was completely uncalled for, for her to jump down off the stage and grab a cell phone out of somebody's hand. It's like, no, that person was completely ruining it for everybody around her right at yeah. that point. I mean, I used to, I, I used to have a, a thought about it, and I haven't really thought about it for a while. But you know, the, I, I, I watched a uh, a filmed podcast that the American Theater Wing did about ten years ago. When you know, people are like, "Well, what do we do about the cell phone problem in theaters?" And some people were like, "We ban them. We just say nope, absolutely not." Um, I did an episode on Daniel Radcliffe and Equus a couple uh, about mm-hmm. a month ago and and how uh, people snuck in to take me out this summer and took pictures and videos of uh, Jesse Williams naked, even though there was like a, a gate at the front that's like cell phones, drop them off here. You can pick them up at the end of the show. Um, but I mean, the 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 stronger issue is like, you know, it is a format where you do have to maintain that attention throughout and yeah. I, I know a cell phone is an easy distraction for people. So, you know, for Miss Lapone to be like, hey, you know what? We're working our asses off out here. And I saw an interview with her where it was it was a theater in the in uh, in thrust. So um, she could see the person out of the corner of her right eye and everybody else could see this person, too. They were like two rows up. And so she just walked over, grabbed the phone, put gave it to somebody backstage and said, sorry, they're distracting everybody. OK, yeah. where were we? And and went on. So it's it's not like it was her being like, I won't have cell phones. It was like, you're not engaging with us here. You're you're actually yeah. kind of wasting your money. Yeah. Well, yeah. And that's and I mean, it goes back to, you know, the cell. this whole cell phone issue is is a is a is a is a problem. But I think there's been I think it's I think it's been a lot of things. I think that there is this. And a and perfect example with the, that audience members response that I pay your. I pay your salary. I pay your it's salary. This, it's this. It's this idea, this overall idea of entitlement that yes. as an audience member, the actors up there are are there, um, 
like dancing monkeys or something like that. <laughs> like seriously, it, it's, yep. it's, I paid my money. I paid my money and you will do what I want you to. Um, I expect certain things from you. Fine. You expect to come to a show to be, to be entertained, to be moved. And those actors are going to do their absolute best. Mm -hmm. Like you're saying, the person next to you came to the same thing. The person next to them, the person behind you, they all came for the same thing. Their experiences are all always going to be different. But right. but by, like you say, feeling entitled to do anything you friggin' want mm -hmm. uh, as an audience member, you know what? If you're not enjoying the show, get up and walk out at intermission. You know, get uh, stay out, stay out. Go out in the quiet room. Do something like that. Mm -hmm. Um Fine, where and where, where you can do whatever the hell you want, but you are, yeah, you are affecting those around you, and it's it's this idea that, and especially now, uh, adding on to it, you know, you take away their cell, they take away people's cell phones, they've still got the idea of entitlement. They've yeah. still got this idea that I can do what I want, and it doesn't affect other people. What right. you do affects other people, and that's if, if that's you're the sitting, bigger problem. If you're sitting next to somebody, you're affecting them. That's how yeah. that that's how that works out because you're in the same place. Yeah, uh, that's why you. I mean, in a in a movie theater, you can't affect the actors. They're in a movie, no. but you affect the other people around you. That's why yep. you. Sh that's why you shut up. That's why you don't have a cell phone. That's and but that's. I mean, cell phones are just the latest the latest version, yeah. Yeah. The latest expression of this ridiculous sense of entitlement that people do not and do not give a crap about how they affect other people. Yeah. The masks so, are another part. I mean, mm -hmm. it's yeah. Anyway, yeah. yeah. So uh, to anybody listening out there, uh, just to just to let you know, uh, Patty Lapone got paid before the ticket sales. Just so you know, and uh, that person had no right over that whatsoever. The show was going to go on whether or not that person paid a ticket or not. So yeah. anyway, uh, so getting back to Miss Lapone talking about yeah. Hal Prince, this is great. Miss Lapone has worked with Hal Prince several times in the past, including when she won her 2008 Tony for Gypsy. But the time she is most likely referring to about Hal Prince being an outlandishly difficult director is when she made her Broadway musical debut playing the title role in Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice's Evita. Did you know that was her? You know what? I probably did somewhere in the back of my brain. I mean, she but I have I've come to the point where I forget so many facts. <laughs> I can't remember. I can't remember half the shows I did. Right? <laughs> Anybody else I liked it. So well, that's what we're going to be talking about today. How one of the most famous faces and voices on Broadway earned the part and developed the character that led to Broadway legend. I, I started to look at this and I went, oh my God, I did this for my episode 25, The Bottled Spider, in which I talked about Sir Tony Schur, who died last December, uh, originate, not originating the role, but creating this amazing new uh, Richard III in which he walked on crutches on his arms. Mm -hmm. Freaking amazing. Anyway, so how did Evita come to be? Well, it was originally a concept album by Rice, uh, Rice and Lloyd Webber, and that's exactly how Jesus Christ Superstar started, They they and they developed it into a huge, massive hit thereafter. So they had mm -hmm. seen that the formula already worked. Um, 
Now, as most creative types are, their antenna are always raised. And by this point, they'd already had two smash hits with Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, Jesus Christ Superstar. And so I think they were trying to find something that kind of went, okay, let's get away from biblical stuff and let's, let's lend our musical style to something new. So somehow, Tim Rice heard the end of a radio show on Ava Perone. And he remembered seeing her face displayed on stamps as from a very young age, he was a rare stamp collector. <laughs> so it was like, I saw this face all the time and I didn't understand why I kept seeing this face all the time. And so as he started to look into it, he's like, oh my God, there is a huge story here with, you know, Cinderella story of rags to riches and uh, overthrows of governments and, and, and just toppling regimes and, and movements of people and socialist movements of people. And so he went, Oh, okay. Sounds like we mm. can write something there. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, I, I didn't want to do a deep dive into the life of Eva Peron, but my God, it's a story. It's, it's, a, it's if any, yeah. Holy yeah. God. I mean, there was one thing that Lapone talked about where she, she talked about after Ava died when she was very young, uh, because she was so popular, they had five different caskets, four of them filled with sand and one of them with her body and they moved them around a bunch. Mm -hmm. And eventually it, she ended up in a graveyard in Italy. The grave was uh, somebody else's name. And so they, yeah, they eventually found her totally preserved and everything in that glass coffin. But at the same time, it was like they had to do that because whoever had Ava Perone's body had the will of the people. That's amazing. That it was is, crazy. It was so crazy. That's an amazing story. Okay, I'm all yeah. I, now. I'm learning something today. Hello, hey. everyone. Hey, everyone. I'm even <laughs> learning something today. <laughs> the more I know now. So. Okay. So to briefly summarize the plot of Evita, uh, it tells the story of a young woman named Eva Perón, who's the wife of Argentinian President Juan Perón, who ascended to the office after a series of both subtle and hostile takeovers until he had the highest office in Argentina. This was after he'd been a political prisoner and freed more or less upon the political pursuits of his wife, Eva, who had previously been known as an actress in radio and film. And because of the public persona she presented of high glamour and devotion to her, air quotes, politically wronged husband, the nation fell in love with her and by proxy, her husband, despite suggestions of his penchants towards fascist government and their supposed support of the Nazi regime. And this is in the mid 40s. So it's mm -hmm. like, you know, they were far moved, uh, far removed away from it. But people are like, I'm hearing about this Nazi shit. Are you into this? And Ava comes <laughs> out and she goes, but I'm pretty. Isn't that nice? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, what was that about problematic? Uh, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, all of that, their, their, their political leanings, it didn't matter. The mm -hmm. working classes, the working classes, the people who needed help the most believed in Evita so much, mostly because she came from poverty herself, a fact that she also used to gain political power. That when she died soon after Perón had taken office, the people mourned her like a saint and even petitioned to have the church grant her sainthood, Santa Evita. Wow. So yeah, that's the plot. Yeah. <laughs> so that yeah, that's that yeah, they, I, I, that's more than just a, a face on a stamp. Yeah. I, yeah. A <laughs> uh huh. So back to the album. 
So Rice and Lloyd Webber recorded and released the concept album in 1976, and they did everything they could to get some famous names and voices in the studio for the recording. And in any case, the album was released in 1976 and became quite popular. By 1978, versions of Don't Cry For Me Argentina had been recorded and released by Karen Carpenter, Petula Clark, and Olivia Newton-John. So it wow. was huge. It was, it was huge, big. Massive. Like ev yeah. everybody's doing their own cover. Mm -hmm. So when they first came up with this idea, like I said, they had a few songs recorded before the album's release in 1976. Rice and Lloyd Webber brought the project to Hal Prince and introduced the idea of eventually staging this as a full-length play, very similar to the way they did Jesus Christ Superstar. The way they teased him with this is they told him about the spectacle of the beginning of the play of 200,000 people outside the Casa Rosada, which is like the, the Argentinian White House. It's known as the pink house because of the color it's painted. And these 200,000 people, 200, people were there to attend the funeral and a public viewing of Evita. Oh, wow. In interviews, Hal Prince has been noted to say something to the effect of, it's a show that starts with a funeral. How bad could it be? So, <laughs> so Rice and Lloyd Webber had just conceived of the idea of doing the show and Prince couldn't con commit to another uh, project for another two years. Uh, and actually, this is great. Hal Prince suggested that they in include a song that introduces Juan Perón, because, uh, you know, if you look at the history, he was in the military and the military kind of overthrew the government several times until he was actually the one in power. So Hal Prince suggested this cool song. Um, gosh, what is it called? The Art of the Possible. And uh, how, how he would have it introduced is you have five rocking chairs on stage and you have five guys come out in full military regalia, you know, the caps and the ribbons and the medals and all that. And music would play and they'd walk around the chairs and then some uh, stagehand would come running out and grab one of the chairs so it was musical, musical chairs. chairs and the music stopped and the one who was not in a chair you're deposed and now somebody else gets to take <laughs> the reins <laughs> so that song well, that was all Hal Prince's idea and the duo put it into the show and it's there to this day oh wow so once he awesome. yeah so once they once they put that in prince was like okay now i'm into it so eventually, the creative team of Prince, Rice, and Lloyd Webber got a production on the West End, which received outstanding acclaim. And the first actor to play Evita on stage was not Patti LuPone. It was actually London favorite El Elaine Page. And the production mm. won many awards, including several Laurence Olivier Awards. And its success was tied to an obvious production that everybody's going, okay, we need to get this to New York. It would be very similar staging, as most of the same team would be accompanying the production, director Hal Prince, choreographer Jerry Fuller, and producer Robert Stigwood. But a totally new cast would be assembled, meaning a totally new starring role opportunity for a major female lead. Wow. Right? Yep. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, obviously, casting is going to be brutal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay and yeah. most of the rest of this if anybody wants to pick this up i got it for like 11 dollars on apple books um but uh most of the rest of this comes from patty lapone's memoir and autobiography it's just it, it's it's just her name patty lapone a memoir but 
God, the stories she tells in it and the language she uses is just fantastic. So as far as the casting is concerned, and here we're going to name drop here, uh, as she put it uh, regarding the casting for Evita for the production of 1979, every actress in the country wanted this part. Barbara Streisand, Anne Margaret, Meryl Streep, Faye Dunaway, even Raquel Welch. Clearly, Patti Lapone, with one pre-Broadway disaster to her credit, was a dark horse. <laughs> I mean, think about that. Those names? That's, Are you kidding that's... me? In 1979? Yeah. But yeah, that's the thing, though. That's the that's the that's the best part about Patty Lapone doing this is because she was the dark horse. Mm -hmm. She also she also went in with no audience preconceived notions of what she was going to have to. She wasn't gonna have to work against a reputation. She wasn't gonna have to work against um uh against uh everybody thinking okay i i you know I, I've, I've seen this person on broadway mm -hmm. as this care you know this is a totally a blank slate right really. right and i think that's the, i think that's kind of cool but the other issue with that though is that everybody had an audio sense of who she was that's, because yeah, that's they'd already bought the 1976 concept album and you've got three yeah. major pop stars who have put out their own version of the most well-known song in the entire mm -hmm. thing mm -hmm. plus uh you've got all these big name actors who are putting it out there because they're like this is the best part in broadway and i really want to do it mm -hmm. but um to put it in perspective the 1970s miss lapone was no slouch she just wasn't as big as no, she wasn't, names. yeah yeah. So here's here's a little bit about uh, Patty in the 70s. Uh, Miss Lapone has the distinction of being in the first class to graduate from Juilliard's drama division, which was created only in 1968. For so, like for some reason that blew oh, wow. my freaking mind, and she was in the first class of that. Um, Miss Lapone appeared in several shows off Broadway throughout the 1970s, as well as traveling extensively with touring companies and managed to appear in a few films and television shows and bit parts. But when Hal Prince's Evita came to Broadway, like I said, everyone wanted a piece of the pie. And initially, Miss Lapone was reluctant to audition because of all the buzz behind the project and mm -hmm. that she didn't think she had a chance to stand out amongst such a crowd of people trying to get the role. However, as Miss Lapone put it, what they were finding out was almost nobody could sing it. There are still probably only a handful of women who can sing Evita in the original keys. But I'll get back to that later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Wow. Okay. Because uh, we'll talk about it later. Like, if you want to go back and listen to, like, put this production next to this production, you're like, holy shit, the, the work that she had to do. Um, plus, if it hadn't been for her former boyfriend and now friend, another graduate of the first class of Juilliard drama, Kevin Klein, as well as urging from Broadway conductor, uh, oh God, I lost his name here, uh, but he was a famous Broadway conductor, Miss Lapone would never have gone in for the audition. <laughs> so Kevin Klein, <laughs> Kevin Klein, her boyfriend is like, I think you should try this out. Uh, and incidentally, I love that uh, every single every single uh, broad uh, story of some sort of Broadway star it always ends up being, uh, and that person turned out to be yeah Kevin Klein <laughs> right. Or that person turned out to be Robin Williams, Billy Crystal, Christopher Reeve, <laughs> <you> know, Michael <laughs> Caine. 
But uh, oh, and you didn't way, know, and you didn't know it back then. But that's you had no idea. Uh, incidentally, this episode was almost going to be exclusively about the love affair between Lapone and Kevin Klein and how it ended. But here's a short in- version of the story because it's just juicy gossip. Uh, another actor we all know, Peter Weller, RoboCop. <laughs> In the late 70s, caught the eye of Miss Lapone while she was in a relationship with Klein. However, during a party that they were all attending one night, Miss Lapone openly and publicly declared her love for Peter Weller, and she and Klein broke up for the first time, but mended it that evening. And they were on and off again for the next few years until, as Miss Lapone puts it, quote, he slept with a chorus girl in Boston while doing On the 20th Century. <laughs> okay, and- I can I can safely say... <laughs> That I will never be involved in a story where someone someone's like, <laughs> and and I only rose to fame because of my fellow famous friend Robert Bogue. He told me to do this. He told me to encourage this, and then later on, he became this mega star as well. Blah 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 blah. blah, blah. I'm not going to be in any of those stories. You I'll never be, know. No, I'll, I will. If I'm in one of the stories. I'm like going to be like, uh, oh yeah, there's there was this there was this guy I knew, and yeah, he told me to do it, and then I did it anyway. He told me not to do it. I did it anyway. Here we go. He was the That's, he was the yes. objector. <laughs> yes, yes, I'm always the one that says, "There's no way you could possibly do this." And so I <laughs> Well, as far as Miss Lapone is concerned, I have no idea if she ever began a romantic relationship with Peter Weller, but she has written about their friendship in her blog. Plus, she's been married to cameraman Matthew Johnston for decades. They have a son together and two homes. So that's yeah, cool. Well, and, and Kevin Klein married to Phoebe Cates. Phoebe Cates uh, for yep. for many, 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 many years. So, yep. so yep. everybody's happy. Everybody's and Peter, happy. And Peter Weller, he's doing all kinds of stuff now again. His, oh my God. His in career her- has re restarted too. Yeah. Now. Well, in her blog, she actually states, so yeah, he's got this acting career, but he also has like these degrees in fine art and art history and has mm-hmm. like these galleries in Italy and and like a whole chalet and all that. And I was like, wow, okay. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. He's a hell he's uh yeah, he's done a lot of a lot of television directing, a yeah. lot of voiceover stuff. I mean he's mm-hmm. yeah he's yeah. Well everybody's he's happy legit. Now. Yeah everybody's, everybody's happy. happy and legit. Yep. There yeah. you go. But I digress. Back to Evita. So in her memoir, Miss Lapone started to see her potential once A-listers started start to remove their names for consideration based on the difficulty to handle the score. And Miss Lapone puts it that as she listened to the concept album, quote, Andrew Lloyd Webber hated women. <laughs> <laughs> Continuing the quote. The high notes in the score, which the character of Evita sits on all night long, are placed in the passaggio, or the passage. The passaggio are the weakest notes to produce as the voice passes from chest to head voice. So, you know, when you're doing your vocal mm-hmm. warm-ups and you go, ah, and your voice, like, cracks there in the middle, mm-hmm. that's the passaggio. That's where yeah. that is. Okay? That's where you have to sing all night. And uh, I, I went and talked to somebody who is a... Um, uh, uh, a vocal singing teacher uh, about this and he said oh yeah there's absolutely no power there I can't imagine how she would do that it's incredibly difficult to do mm-hmm. so you know you have all these big marquee names that can't do it yeah and she's like well okay um well, she, well she's in a good she's in a good uh, good company because he did the same thing to Sarah Brightman 
in, my God. Uh, in, yeah. uh, in Phantom. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> but anyway. You said jerk. Well, I'm going to come back to that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I'm okay. not, I'm, I'm not going to disagree with you. <laughs> okay. Well, it's out. Well, it's out there. It's going to be out there in a podcast. So now it's out yep. there that I've said it. And so that's the last time you'll ever see me doing anything in theater. Yeah, so. exactly. Same here. Um, <laughs> this is my show. I'm, That's right. So I'm 100% canceled by Andrew Lloyd Webber at this point. Um, anyway, Miss Lapone also notes that the Broadway production casting director, Joanna Merlin, did know Miss Lapone from her work at Juilliard, but only in a non-musical sense. So when she auditioned and it seemed that she could vocally handle the part, Joanna Merlin told Miss Lapone that, hey, why don't you make sure to make yourself free for a callback, the final callback? Nice. <laughs> okay. However, this is great. Here We're going to connect some dots here. This is great. Okay. However, this was fall 1978. And Miss Lapone had also just been cast in Steven Spielberg's World War II satire, 1941. Uh Uh-huh. Albeit in a role with only one line. She actually wanted to go for the lead, but Nancy Allen got it. Uh, And But still, even though she was Patty Lapone, she got named credit. Mm Mm-hmm. Plus, she had never really been in films too much before and kind of wanted to expand that part of her resume. Mm -hmm. It was while she's in L.A. filming that she got the call for the final callback for Evita. The only problem was that the filming of 1984 or 1984. God, there's a difference. Yeah. (laughs) Let me go back and try that again. The only problem was that the filming of 1941 was now under travel restrictions passed down directly from Spielberg. It seems that one day when a lead actor wasn't called to set for the day, he went out of town. But it turns out they did need him and they couldn't get him. So a whole day, to sh- day of shooting was scrapped and they were on a deadline. That's precisely when Miss Lapone got the call to return for Evita. <laughs> She's grounded and uh-huh. needs to be in New York. So she begs and begs and begs and finally got permission to return to New York City for one day to audition. And this was all on her dime. Uh huh. And she was warned that if she couldn't get back the next day for shooting, that her career in Hollywood would be over. She made it clear that they use specifically those words. She's like, I didn't think they actually said that, but apparently they do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Okay. She got so she flies home, gets to flies her apartment. Home. Yep, gets to her apartment in New York. Goes to bed, wakes up to a blizzard. <laughs> what a Ouch. snow on the ground. Hurriedly, she gets she gets her gear packed back up, and since she's heading to the airport for LA right after the audition, she ended. Uh, she's got her luggage with her. She ends up at the wrong train station. She has to walk two blocks in wet snow with all her luggage, realizing that her flight would most likely be canceled, which again meant that her career in Hollywood was over. Miss Lapone strode into the audition for Evita with absolute fury, thinking that this part was still probably a long shot for her, and it just cost her another uh, limb of her career. (laughs) So with this anger, she threw herself into the audition, channeling all the rage she could into the performance. Mm -hmm. And when she was done, she got into a cab, got to the airport to realize that her flight had indeed been canceled completely out of options, completely exhausted. She said this, quote, I lay down and slept on the airport floor with my hair and big rollers for my 1941 hairdo wearing a sleep mask. <laughs> what a day. Oh my God. 
So she manages to call a member of the production staff for 1941, told her everything that had happened and was reassured that her Hollywood career was not over as everyone there understood the circumstances were totally out of her control. In the morning, she was surprised to find out that her seat on a flight was not automatically rescheduled. Had she not been seen by another Juilliard alumni, somebody you mentioned just a little bit ago, Christopher Reeve. Christopher Reeve, yeah, 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 yeah. Who was in the fourth group, not the first, but Juilliard crew, they seem to keep pretty close. Mm -hmm. She may not have made it back at all. Reeve and Lapone knew each other, and he was still somewhat new to celebrity, and he had just been seen in the first Superman movie. And after hearing the plight of Miss Lapone, was able to surprise her with his seat on a plane back to L.A. And when she got back to L.A., everyone asked her how she got back so quickly, to which she replied, Superman. That's awesome. <laughs> See, seriously, seriously. Anybody that went to Juilliard in those days, especially Christopher Reeve, actually, I'm just going to say mm -hmm. Christopher Reeve was the one that is like the, is like the, is like the, the core, the he, he helped everybody, everybody. Yeah. Yep. attributes something back to Christopher Reeve. So that's yep. awesome. <laughs> Isn't that great? That's awesome. Well, and it's funny because as through the through the miracle of uh, of technology, as you're as you're sitting here talking, I'm typing out uh, uh, on IMDb. You know, the, the end of Patty La <laughs> Patty Lapone's career of uh, in 1941 and 1979. She has got such a ridiculous number of oh of god friggin' credits here. It's yeah. in insane uh -huh. it is just insane how many but i think if if you look at it oh like yeah God. she's done a ton of film and tv stuff but nothing really stuck except for i think she was in that she was the mom in that series life goes on mm -hmm. and actually was like you know the singer in the uh in the the theme song obladi oblada like, oblada uh-huh yeah yeah, yeah. She, i mean she's done yeah she's done a ton of like 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 penny dreadful and she's mm -hmm. done like voiceover stuff and oh yeah yeah oh yeah it's yeah oh an american, an american horror story yeah that's another oh really, yeah that's right yeah really, really good one yeah so she even touched by an angel that makes me laugh because that's one yeah. of the only that's one of the only things i've done too i'm like so i am i am connected you've got a connection touched, touched by a freaking angel only i'm gonna say she oh. did it in the eighth season i did it in the sixth season so I, I, I did it first. So she, so, okay, so, well. so it was because of my work that there Testify you go. and Angel was able to continue. So you are welcome. You are welcome, Patty Lapone, for me helping to give you more work. <laughs> I'm not going to, I'm not going to, to ask for credit, but I'm going but, to just um, accept it. You know, so there if, you go. Uh, if I ever see you at the stage door, I'm oh just going to, I'll have a handout and say, oh, you yeah. owe me something. If you ever see, um, yeah, if, if she ever sees me at the stage door, <laughs> I'll, I'll be escorted out um, <laughs> into the alleyway. Yeah, that's, that's what will happen. So there you go. Oh my gosh, my friends and listeners, this has been so much fun to re-listen to this interview I did with Robert the other day as I've been sitting here editing it furiously. Uh, but as I am editing, I'm realizing that Robert and I had such a great time talking about this. We recorded almost two hours of raw footage. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is I'm going to go ahead and give this another episode in another two weeks. And what we'll find out there is just how Patty felt a touch of the divine 
coming into this role and how the LA and San Francisco out-of-town tryouts worked out in which, oh my gosh, pitfalls and perils, my friends and listeners. I'm just going to give you that little bit of a tease. So for this episode of Euripides, Humanities, a theater history podcast, this is Aaron Odom signing off and I will see you at intermission.